Section 10 of Manners, Customs, and Dress. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Ruth Golding. Manners, Customs, and Dress during the Middle Ages and during the Renaissance period by Paul Lacroix. Section 10. Butcher's Meat. According to Strabo, the Gauls were great eaters of meat, especially of pork, whether fresh or salted. Gaul, says he, feeds so many flocks, and above all so many pigs, that it supplies not only Rome, but all Italy, with grease and salt meat. The second chapter of the Salic Law, comprising nineteen articles, relates entirely to penalties for pig-stealing, and in the laws of the Visigoths we find four articles on the same subject. In those remote days, in which the land was still covered with enormous forests of oak, great facilities were offered for breeding pigs, whose special liking for acorns is well known. Thus the bishops, princes, and lords caused numerous droves of pigs to be fed on their domains, both for the purpose of supplying their own tables, as well as for the fairs and markets. At a subsequent period, it became the custom for each household, whether in town or country, to rear and fasten a pig, which was killed and salted at a stated period of the year, and this custom still exists in many provinces. In Paris, for instance, there was scarcely a bourgeois who had not two or three young pigs, during the day these unsightly creatures were allowed to roam in the streets, which, however, they helped to keep clean by eating up the refuse of all sorts which was thrown out of the houses. One of the sons of Louis le Gros, while passing on the 2nd of October, 1131, in the Rue du Martois, between the Hôtel de Ville and the Church of Saint-Gervais, fractured his skull by a fall from his horse caused by a pig running between that animal's legs. This accident led to the first order being issued by the provosts to the effect that breeding pigs within the town was forbidden. Custom, however, deep-rooted for centuries, resisted this order, and many others on the same subject which followed it. For we find, under Francis I, a license was issued to the executioner, empowering him to capture all the stray pigs which he could find in Paris, and to take them to the Hôtel Dieu, when he should receive either five sous in silver, or the head of the animal. It is said that the holy men of Saint-Antoine, in virtue of the privilege attached to the popular legend of their patron, who was generally represented with a pig, objected to this order, and long after maintained the exclusive right of allowing their pigs to roam in the streets of the capital. The obstinate determination with which every one tried to evade the administrative laws on this subject is explained, in fact, by the general taste of the French nation for pork. This taste appears somewhat strange at a time when this kind of food was supposed to engender leprosy, a disease with which France was at that time overrun. Pig's meat made up generally the greater part of the domestic banquets. There was no great feast at which hams, sausages, and black puddings were not served in profusion on all the tables, 
and as Easter Day, which brought to a close the prolonged fastings of Lent, was one of the great feasts, this food formed the most important dish on that occasion. It is possible that the necessity for providing for the consumption of that day originated the celebrated Ham Fair, which was and is still held annually on the Thursday of Passion Week in front of Notre-Dame, where the dealers from all parts of France, and especially from Normandy and Lower Brittany, assembled with their swine. Sanitary measures were taken in Paris and in the various towns in order to prevent the evil effects likely to arise from the enormous consumption of pork. Public officers, called langoyeurs, were ordered to examine the animals to ensure that they had not white ulcers under the tongue, these being considered the signs that their flesh was in a condition to communicate leprosy to those who partook of it. For a long time, the retail sale of pork was confined to the butchers, like that of other meat. Salt or fresh pork was at one time always sold raw, though at a later period some retailers, who carried on business principally among the lowest orders of the people, took to selling cooked pork and sausages. They were named charcuitiers or saucissiers. This new trade, which was most lucrative, was adopted by so many people that Parliament was forced to limit the number of charcuitiers, who at last formed a corporation and received their statutes, which were confirmed by the king in 1475. Amongst the privileges attached to their calling was that of selling red herrings and sea-fish in Lent, during which time the sale of pork was strictly forbidden. Although they had the exclusive monopoly of selling cooked pork, they were, at first, forbidden to buy their meat of any one but of the butchers, who alone had the right of killing pigs. And it was only in 1513 that the charcutiers were allowed to purchase at market and sell the meat raw, in opposition to the butchers, who in consequence gradually gave up killing and selling pork. Although the consumption of butcher's meat was not so great in the Middle Ages as it is now, the trade of a butcher, to which extraordinary privileges were attached, was nevertheless one of the industries which realised the greatest profits. We know what an important part the butchers played in the municipal history of France, as also of Belgium, and we also know how great their political influence was, especially in the fifteenth century. The existence of the great slaughterhouse of Paris dates back to the most remote period of monarchy. The parish church of the Corporation of Butchers, namely that of Saint-Pierre-aux-Boeufs in the city, on the front of which were two sculptured oxen, existed before the tenth century. A Celtic monument was discovered on the site of the ancient part of Paris, with a bar-relief representing a wild bull carrying three cranes, standing among oak branches. Archaeology has chosen to recognise in this sculpture a druidical allegory, which has descended to us in the shape of the triumphal car of the prize ox. The butchers, who, for centuries at least in France, only killed sheep and pigs, proved themselves most jealous of their privileges, and admitted no strangers into their corporation. The proprietorship of stalls at the markets, 
and the right of being admitted as a master butcher at the age of seven years and a day, belonged exclusively to the male descendants of a few rich and powerful families. The kings of France alone, on their accession, could create a new master butcher. Since the middle of the fourteenth century, the Grande Boucherie was the seat of an important jurisdiction, composed of a mayor, a master, a proctor, and an attorney. It also had a judicial council, before which the butchers could bring up all their cases, and an appeal from which could only be considered by Parliament. Besides this court, which had to decide cases of misbehaviour on the part of the apprentices, and all their appeals against their masters, the corporation had a council in Parliament, as also one at the Châtelet, who were specially attached to the interests of the butchers, and were in their pay. Although bound at all events with their money to follow the calling of their fathers, we find many descendants of ancient butchers' families of Paris, in the fourteenth and fifteenth centuries, abandoning their stalls to fill high places in the state, and even at court. It must not be concluded that the rich butchers in those days occupied themselves with the minor details of their trade. The greater number employed servants who cut up and retailed the meat, and they themselves simply kept the accounts, and were engaged in dealing through factors or foremen for the purchase of beasts for their stalls. One can form an opinion of the wealth of some of these tradesmen by reading the enumeration made by an old chronicler of the property and income of Guillaume de Saint-Yon, one of the principal master butchers in 1370. Quote, he was proprietor of three stalls, in which meat was weekly sold to the amount of 200 livres parisis, the livre being equivalent to 24 francs at least with an average profit of ten to fifteen per cent. He had an income of six hundred livres parisis. He possessed besides his family house in Paris, four country houses, well supplied with furniture and agricultural implements, drinking cups, vases, cups of silver, and cups of onyx with silver feet, valued at a hundred francs or more each. His wife had jewels, belts, purses, and trinkets to the value of upwards of a thousand gold francs. The gold franc was worth twenty-four livres. Long and short gowns trimmed with fur, and three mantles of grey fur. Guillaume de Saint-Yon had generally in his storehouses three hundred ox-hides, worth twenty-four francs each at least, eight hundred measures of fat, worth three and a half sols each. In his sheds he had eight hundred sheep, worth a hundred sols each. In his safes, five hundred or six hundred silver florins of ready money. The florin was worth twelve francs, which must be multiplied five times to estimate its value in present currency. And his household furniture was valued at twelve thousand florins. He gave a dowry of two thousand florins to his two nieces, and spent three thousand florins in rebuilding his Paris house. And lastly, as if he had been a noble, he used a silver seal. End quote. We find in the Ménagier de Paris curious statistics respecting the various butchers' shops of the capital, and the daily sale in each at the period referred to. 
this sale, without counting the households of the king, the queen, and the royal family, which were specially provisioned, amounted to 26,624 oxen, 162,760 sheep, 27,456 pigs, and 15,912 calves per annum, to which must be added not only the smoked and salted flesh of two hundred or three hundred pigs which were sold at the fair in Holy Week, but also six thousand four hundred and twenty sheep, eight hundred and twenty-three oxen, eight hundred and thirty-two calves, and six hundred and twenty-four pigs, which, according to the Menagier, were used in the royal and princely households. Sometimes the meat was sent to market already cut up, but the slaughter of beasts was more frequently done in the butcher's shops in the town, for they only killed from day to day, according to the demand. Besides the butchers, there were tripe shops, where the feet, kidneys, etc., were sold. According to Bruarin Champier, during the sixteenth century the most celebrated sheep in France were those of Berry and Limousin, and of all butcher's meat, veal was reckoned the best. In fact, calves intended for the tables of the upper classes were fed in a special manner. They were allowed for six months, or even for a year, nothing but milk, which made their flesh most tender and delicate. Contrary to the present taste, kid was more appreciated than lamb, which caused the rotisseur frequently to attach the tail of a kid to a lamb, so as to deceive the customer and sell him a less expensive meat at the higher price. This was the origin of the proverb which described a cheat as a dealer in goat by halves. In other places, butchers were far from acquiring the same importance which they did in France and Belgium, where much more meat was consumed than in Spain, Italy, or even in Germany. Nevertheless, in almost all countries there were certain regulations, sometimes eccentric, but almost always rigidly enforced, to ensure a supply of meat of the best quality and in a healthy state. In England, for instance, butchers were only allowed to kill bulls after they had been baited with dogs, no doubt with the view of making the flesh more tender. At Mons, it was laid down in the trade regulations that, quote, no butcher shall be so bold as to sell meat unless it shall have been previously seen alive by two or three persons who will testify to it on oath, and anyhow they shall not sell it until the persons shall have declared it wholesome, end quote, etc. To the many regulations affecting the interests of the public, must be added that forbidding butchers to sell meat on days when abstinence from animal food was ordered by the church. These regulations applied less to the vendors than to the consumers who, by disobeying them, were liable to fine or imprisonment, or to severe corporal punishment by the whip or in the pillory. We find that Clément Marot was imprisoned and nearly burned alive for having eaten pork in Lent. In 1534, Guillaume des Moulins, Count of Brie, asked permission for his mother, who was then eighty years of age, to cease fasting, 
the Bishop of Paris only granted dispensation on condition that the old lady should take her meals in secret and out of sight of every one, and should still fast on Fridays. In a certain town, says Brontome, there had been a procession in Lent. A woman who had assisted at it barefooted went home to dine off a quarter of lamb and a ham. The smell got into the street, the house was entered. The fact being established, the woman was taken and condemned to walk through the town with her quarter of lamb on the spit over her shoulder and the ham hung round her neck. This species of severity increased during the times of religious dissensions. Erasmus says, He who has eaten pork instead of fish is taken to the torture like a parricide. An edict of Henry II, 1549, forbade the sale of meat in Lent to persons who should not be furnished with a doctor's certificate. Charles IX forbade the sale of meat to the Huguenots, and it was ordered that the privilege of selling meat during the time of abstinence should belong exclusively to the hospitals. Orders were given to those who retailed meat to take the address of every purchaser, although he had presented a medical certificate, so that the necessity for his eating meat might be verified. Subsequently, the medical certificate required to be endorsed by the priest, specifying what quantity of meat was required. Even in these cases, the use of butcher's meat alone was granted, pork, poultry, and game being strictly forbidden. Poultry A monk of the Abbey of Cluny once went on a visit to his relations. On arriving, he asked for food, but as it was a fast day, he was told there was nothing in the house but fish. Perceiving some chickens in the yard, he took a stick and killed one and brought it to his relations, saying, This is the fish which I shall eat today. Eh, hey, but my son, they said, have you dispensation from fasting on a Friday? No, he answered, but poultry is not flesh. Fish and fowls were created at the same time. They have a common origin, as the hymn which I sing in the service teaches me. This simple legend belongs to the tenth century, and notwithstanding that the opinion of this Benedictine monk may appear strange nowadays, yet it must be acknowledged that he was only conforming himself to the opinions laid down by certain theologians. In 817, the Council of Aix-la-Chapelle decided that such delicate nourishment could scarcely be called mortification, as understood by the teaching of the Church. In consequence of this, an order was issued forbidding the monks to eat poultry, except during four days at Easter and four at Christmas. But this prohibition in no way changed the established custom of certain parts of Christendom, and the faithful persisted in believing that poultry and fish were identical in the eyes of the church, and accordingly continued to eat them indiscriminately. We also see, in the middle of the thirteenth century, St. Thomas Aquinas, who was considered an authority in questions of dogma and of faith, ranking poultry amongst species of aquatic origin. Eventually this palpable error was abandoned, but when the Church forbade Christians the use of poultry on fast days, 
it made an exception, out of consideration for the ancient prejudice, in favour of teal, widgeon, moorhens, and also two or three kinds of small amphibious quadrupeds. Hence probably arose the general and absurd beliefs concerning the origin of teal, which some said sprung from the rotten wood of old ships, others from the fruits of a tree or the gum on fir-trees, whilst others thought they came from a fresh-water shell, analogous to that of the oyster and mussel. As far back as modern history can be traced, we find that a similar mode of fattening poultry was employed then as now, and was one which the Gauls must have learnt from the Romans. Amongst the charges in the households of the kings of France, one item was that which concerned the poultry-house, and which, according to an edict of Saint-Louis in 1261, bears the name of Poulaillé. At a subsequent period, this name was given to breeders and dealers in poultry. The Ménagier tells us that, as is the present practice, chickens were fattened by depriving them of light and liberty, and gorging them with succulent food. Amongst the poultry-yards in repute at that time, the author mentions that of Esdin, a property of the Dukes of Luxembourg in Artois, that of the King at the Hôtel Saint-Paul, Rue Saint-Antoine, Paris, that of Master Hugues Aubriot, Provost of Paris, and that of Charlot, no doubt a bourgeois of that name, who also gave his name to an ancient street in that quarter called the Marais. Capons are frequently mentioned in poems of the twelfth and thirteenth centuries, but the name of the Poulard does not occur until the sixteenth. We know that under the Roman rule the Gauls carried on a considerable trade in fattened geese. This trade ceased when Gaul passed to new masters, but the breeding of geese continued to be carefully attended to. For many centuries geese were more highly prized than any other description of poultry, and Charlemagne ordered that his domains should be well stocked with flocks of geese, which were driven to feed in the fields like flocks of sheep. There was an old proverb, Who eats the king's goose returns the feathers in a hundred years. This bird was considered a great delicacy by the working classes and bourgeoisie. The rotisseurs had hardly anything in their shops but geese, and therefore, when they were united in a company, they received the name of waillé or wailleur. The street in which they were established, with their spits always loaded with juicy roasts, was called Rue des Oux, Geese, and this street, when it ceased to be frequented by the Waillet, became, by corruption, Rue Auxor. There is every reason for believing that the domestication of the wild duck is of quite recent date. The attempt having succeeded, it was wished to follow it up by the naturalisation in the poultry-yard of two other sorts of aquatic birds, namely the sheldrake, Tadorna, and the moorhen, but without success. Some attribute the introduction of turkeys into France and Europe to Jacques Coeur, treasurer to Charles VII, whose commercial connections with the East were very extensive. Others assert that it is due to King René, Count of Provence, 
but according to the best authorities these birds were first brought into France in the time of Francis I by Admiral Philippe de Chabot, and Bruyerin Champier asserts that they were not known until even later. It was at about the same period that guinea fowls were brought from the coast of Africa by Portuguese merchants, and the travelling naturalist Pierre Belon, who wrote in the year 1555, asserts that in his time, quote, they had already so multiplied in the houses of the nobles that they had become quite common. End quote. The peafowl played an important part in the chivalric banquets of the Middle Ages. According to old poets, the flesh of this noble bird is food for the brave. A poet of the thirteenth century says that thieves have as much taste for falsehood as a hungry man has for the flesh of the peacock. In the fourteenth century, poultry-yards were still stocked with these birds, but the turkey and the pheasant gradually replaced them, as their flesh was considered somewhat hard and stringy. This is proved by the fact that in 1581, La Nouvelle Coutume du Bourbonnois only reckons the value of these beautiful birds at two sous and a half, or about three francs of present currency. Game our forefathers included among the birds which now constitute feathered game the heron, the crane, the crow, the swan, the stork, the cormorant, and the bittern. These supplied the best tables, especially the first three, which were looked upon as exquisite food, fit even for royalty, and were reckoned as thorough French delicacies. There were at that time heronries, as at a later period there were pheasantries. People also ate birds of prey, and only rejected those which fed on carrion. Swans, which were much appreciated, were very common on all the principal rivers of France, especially in the north. A small island below Paris had taken its name from these birds, and has maintained it ever since. It was proverbially said that the Charente was bordered with swans, and for this same reason Valenciennes was called Val des Cygnes, or the Swan Valley. Some authors make it appear that for a long time young game was avoided, owing to the little nourishment it contained and its indigestibility, and assert that it was only when some French ambassadors returned from Venice that the French learnt that young partridges and leverets were exquisite, and quite fit to appear at the most sumptuous banquets. The Ménagier gives not only various receipts for cooking them, but also for dressing chickens when game was out of season, so as to make them taste like young partridges. There was a time when they fattened pheasants as they did capons. It was a secret, says Liebel, only known to the poultry dealers, but although they were much appreciated, the pullet was more so, and realised as much as two crowns each. This does not mean the gold crown, but a current coin worth three livres. Plovers, which sometimes came from Beauce in cartloads, were much relished. They were roasted without being drawn, as also were turtle-doves and larks. For, says an ancient author, larks only eat small pebbles and sand, doves grains of juniper and scented herbs, and plovers feed on air. 
At a later period, the same honour was conferred on woodcocks. Thrushes, starlings, blackbirds, quail, and partridges were in equal repute according to the season. The bec figue, a small bird like a nightingale, was so much esteemed in Provence that there were feasts at which that bird alone was served, prepared in various ways. But of all birds used for the table, none could be compared to the young cuckoo, taken just as it was full-fledged. As far as we can ascertain, the Gauls had a dislike to the flesh of rabbits, and they did not even hunt them, for according to Strabo, southern Gaul was infested with these mischievous animals, which destroyed the growing crops and even the barks of the trees. There was considerable change in this respect a few centuries later, for every one in town or country reared domesticated rabbits, and the wild ones formed an article of food which was much in request. In order to ascertain whether a rabbit is young, Strabo tells us we should feel the first joint of the foreleg, when we shall find a small bone free and movable. This method is adopted in all kitchens in the present day. Hares were preferred to rabbits, provided they were young, for an old French proverb says, An old hare and an old goose are food for the devil. The hedgehog and squirrel were also eaten. As for roe and red deer, they were, according to Dr. Bruyerin Champier, morsels fit for kings and rich people. The doctor speaks of fried slices of the young horn of the stag as the daintiest of food, and the Ménagier de Paris shows how, as early as the fourteenth century, beef was dished up like bear's flesh venison for the use of kitchens in countries where the black bear did not exist. This proves that bear's flesh was in those days considered good food. End of section 10